0: No nation, however large or small, wealthy or poor, can escape the impact of climate change.
1: The question before me as a policymaker is, if we ban all carbon emissions in the United States, will it change the dramatic changes in climate and these dramatic weather impacts that we're now reading about? And anyone who says that we will is not being truthful.
0: Brazil's lack of housing is nothing new, particularly in cities like Sao Paulo. Over the last few years, a rise in real estate prices has made the situation even worse.
2: Welcome to Omnia, the podcast series on all things pen arts and sciences. The politics of climate change and the politics of social inequality such as the right to affordable housing, are usually examined as two separate issues. For Daniel Aldana Cohen, assistant professor of sociology, these two movements intersect when examining efforts to reduce carbon emissions in urban areas. Cohen has conducted research in cities such as San Paolo and New York, and argues that to be effective, climate policy needs to be equitable. Besides his work as an academic, Cohen is also the co-host of a podcast on the politics of climate change called Hot and Bothered. The show has featured prominent climate scientists, journalists, and activists such as Michael Mann, Naomi Klein, and Ken Henshaw. In this episode, we speak with him about his research and his experience as both an academic and fellow podcast producer.
1: So I grew up in Toronto, actually, and... From elementary school on uh, in Canada, you learn about things like climate science, and it's not even considered to be controversial there. So I've always known that climate change was a big deal and a problem. Um, After I finished my undergraduate in Montreal, I became a journalist, and it was really reading journalism, and in particular, George Monbiot writing for the UK Guardian, Elizabeth Colbert in The New Yorker, that I realized how big and bad of a problem climate change was how tied in it was to politics, economics, uh, sociological issues. And it was uh, sort of a few years after that, and after absorbing that, that I just made a commitment that I would devote my life to trying to better understand how climate change was entwined with political and economic and social dynamics, uh, really with an eye to solving this problem, preventing catastrophic climate change. So I decided to do a PhD in sociology. Sociology can sometimes be very narrow, but at its best, it's really a field that allows you to think very big, connected to granular detail on the ground, but also really big picture stuff, economics, politics, social dynamics. And in a way, I think it is the ideal field to understand how climate change works in in the world and what we can do about it. I decided to do my research on climate politics in cities. I wanted to be able to look at the dynamics of climate politics in rich and and less rich countries. So I chose New York and Sao Paulo. They're two cities that are very early on, tried to to tackle the issue of climate change, made very ambitious commitments to reduce their their carbon emissions. So I wanted to really learn kind of getting on the ground in the nitty gritty of social struggle, what was working and and what wasn't working and and why.
2: As part of his research in Sao Paulo, Cohen met with organizations focused on climate policy and discovered a connection between parts of their agenda and the demands of prominent housing movements in the city.
1: So I discovered a kind of very elite, upper-middle-class environment where people were passing around PDFs, making PowerPoint presentations. It wasn't having a huge impact, but they were saying that cities need to have more affordable housing downtown, closer to jobs, more public transit, kind of better urban planning overall. And then I suddenly noticed that actually almost these identical bullet points were in the lists of demands that the housing movements in Sao Paulo were putting up. And the housing movements in Sao Paulo, extremely dynamic, very powerful social movement. Uh, they would be occupying, sort of squatting dozens of buildings at a time in downtown Sao Paulo, really able to push the government ...to kind of meet some of its demands, and I thought, wait a minute, there is a total disjuncture here between two groups of folks from very different social backgrounds... ...who are kind of basically asking for the exact same thing, but they're not talking to each other, and they haven't really realized the, the overlap in what they're interested in. And that really got me thinking, there's a real story here around inequality and around social mobilization and in politics that if we could really figure that out, we could maybe build much bigger coalitions to kind of tackle climate change and inequality uh, at the same time.
2: Recently, Cohen has been working to measure the carbon footprint of affluence in cities like New York. His data has shown that higher consumer spending means carbon pollution is still occurring on a global
1: level, despite local efforts at reducing emissions. If you live in a prosperous city, the pollution that is caused by your consumption happens outside of city limits. Now, this uh, is not very often recognized. And so there is, I think, a major kind of liberal self-satisfaction and complacency of city dwellers in the United States who feel, hey, I live with trees, you know, I live in an apartment, I'm great. And what's really happening is that the responsibility for the pollution that makes that affluence possible, that responsibility is dumped into coal states and coal communities in the United States. It's dumped into factory towns in places like, China. So it's there is a real hypocrisy in much of the celebration of cities as this kind of post-industrial, post-material uh, place. What they really are is they're elsewhere industrial or elsewhere material. Uh, so the pollution happens elsewhere. Now, one of the things I've been working on uh, recently is on a much more sophisticated carbon footprint studies that really quantify the carbon footprint of, of affluence. And so that we can see that cities are not, in fact, snow globes, and that very affluent urban areas, even if they're very dense, even if they have subways, even if you walk to work, the nature of the patterns of consumer spending in those places cause a huge amount of carbon pollution, but that it occurs elsewhere. So again, when you think about cities and social factors in terms of the global economy, the fact that the economy is global, that flows are global, you really, I think, get a more nuanced understanding of... What is the contribution of urban living to fighting climate change? And once again, what you find is that mixed income communities with a lot of affordable housing, with access to good public services, with good public transportation, those are the areas that really have the lowest carbon footprints. And those really need to be the model for what we think of as the low carbon city. You're not going to achieve this kind of affordable, uh, democratic, low carbon environment unless you really have everybody at the table when you're making the decisions. So I would say that just at the level of building a coalition and bringing the right folks around the table, adding the housing community to the environmental community is where you start to get some really interesting and sophisticated and optimistic stories about what the future could, could look like. Hey, Kate. Hey, Daniel. Welcome to episode five of Hot and Bothered, podcast on the politics of climate change for the 99%. So a couple of years ago, I had what I thought was a great idea to start a podcast about climate politics. I reached out to my friend, Kate Aronoff, who uh, is a journalist who works on climate issues and, and other social and political issues. And we both agreed that there was a real need to make an effort to combine two conversations, one about social and political inequality, and the other one about climate change. And we came up with this idea to have a podcast, to call it Hot and Bothered, try to make it a bit fun. And really have a conversation about climate change. We call it a climate podcast for the 99%. Uh, one of the commitments we had in the podcast is to combine two different pieces that don't often go together. One is sort of experts, whether it's from NGOs or wonks or academia, and the other is uh, folks who are engaged in everyday struggle in the social movement space. And a podcast is kind of cool, because you could have an episode, and we've had a few, where you have, let's say, a report from Standing Rock, uh, where there's been this you know big battle over the Dakota Access Pipeline report from Standing Rock, and then here on a slightly different topic a conversation about energy policy uh, more broadly or about climate science or, or something like that. So Michael Mann is a climate scientist at Penn State. He's one of the world's most important and, and best-known climate scientists, uh, very famous for something called the hockey stick graph, which shows that emissions and temperatures kind of really shot up in the last uh, 100, 150 years. So we had on Michael Mann... To basically ask him, you know as a climate scientist, are these tipping points real? How bad are they? and does it mean that it's too late, or can we still avoid the worst? and I, I really wanted to to push Michael to help us understand what is our situation here. There's so much doom and gloom, and there's so many news clips uh, which suggest that some catastrophic thing has happened that it's so easy to switch off and what I thought was fascinating. Uh, was that when I asked Michael and, and really tried to pin him down on the situation, he ended up suggesting that not only are climate denialists a barrier to progress, but a lot of climate activists have been too catastrophist. They've exaggerated the kind of bad news stories, kind of cherry-picked some of the data, and made it feel like really we have run out of time or we just have one more window of one more year to go, and that's not the case. So in this clip, you kind of hear Michael wrestling with and trying to come up with the right metaphor to really specify this fact that, yes, time is short, but we do have time. This is winnable. Uh, It really is worth putting our effort into this. What I'm hearing from you actually is it's not quite as bad as the worst case scenario uh, image, the science ness image makes it out to be. But that actually gives us more reason to act more quickly because there is still time, but Things are happening kind of fast, and that the, it really is worth getting, just sort of getting as many feet in the door, or kind of getting as many feet moving. I don't know what the right metaphor there is to really to really get started on tackling this problem.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, you know, it really is the case that you know there is still time. We are not committed yet to catastrophic uh, changes in climate. You know, civilization-ending changes in climate, but. the the window of opportunity to avert catastrophic climate change is shrinking. Uh, And uh, if you just look at the mainstream science, it's enough to tell us that the cost of inaction, of not doing something right now, is far greater than any reasonable estimated costs of action. So it just makes no sense at all for us not to be incentivizing renewable energy and non-carbon energy and transitioning as rapidly as possible away from a fossil fuel global economy uh, because the cost of not doing that is far greater than any cost of shifting our uh, energy production system.
1: Well, I think that right now climate change is a story about science and is a story about technology. What I find in my research on the politics of climate change is that there are some really exciting and interesting connections happening between people organizing and being politically active at the community level, often on issues of of environmental justice, uh, racial justice, economic justice. And those folks are plugging in now to the climate conversation. So I think if we can, with the podcast and then in in my own research uh, more generally, really put forward those stories of ordinary people getting involved with this issue and kind of building bridges from economic anxiety to climate issues, if we can really put those stories of engagement out there, I think, or I hope, (laughs) that, that that could really help motivate people to then themselves kind of join in this fight, this sort of intersectional fight of tackling economic issues and climate change challenges at the same time.
2: This has been a presentation of Penn Arts and Sciences. Special thanks to Daniel Aldana Cohen from the Department of Sociology. To listen to previous episodes of the Omnia podcast, visit our website or subscribe to the Omnia podcast by Penn Arts and Sciences on iTunes.